Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis, two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, seeking out people who are leading lives less ordinary in order to find out how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Tim Robertson. Now, Tim's a former Air Force F-18 fighter pilot. Yes, he's one of those guys. But not being happy with being just a fighter pilot, in 1998, Tim also did the Special Air Service Regiment Selection Course and became the first Australian Air Force officer selected. He served in operations and training as a water operator before a secondment to the United Kingdom's Special Boat Service, or SBS. As usual, Tim's timing was perfect. He served within the SBS on the ground during the invasion of Iraq. After his military service, Tim pretty much has the complete Swiss Army knife of experience. He's been an advisor to an oil company in Geneva. He's raised aviation capabilities to government and contributed to national intelligence tasks. And he's also been the owner of an aviation company flying seaplanes in Tasmania. In addition to being qualified on 21 different aircraft types, both fixed and rotary wing, Tim's also qualified on six different musical instruments. He's a musician, self-taught for the most part. Now naturally I've forgotten something, but hopefully it'll come out in the conversation we're about to have with Tim Robbo, chronic underachiever. Welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 and welcome my co-host Ben. G'day. And to our special guest, who has quite an incredible array of life experiences, as you've heard in Ben's introduction, special welcome to Tim Robertson. Robbo, welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Now, my first question is to you both. You've both got a fair bit in common. Both SAS water operators. Both were musicians in the band, Tongue Charge. Yep. So who was a better musician? Well, it's... I've never actually heard, never heard musician and tongue charge in the same <laughs> sentence before, so that's kind of nice. Um, the, uh, in fact, my daughter just recently graduated from a musical performance school, and uh, I looked at her and said, okay, that's a musician, so she outstripped me long ago. But going with the broad context of musician, uh, Pronky was one of the founders of Tongue Charge, so I just stepped into his shoes. So I'd say he sort of outstrips me on the focus and the technical skill, I might have a little bit more diversity than he does. Yeah, I reckon Robbo's a better musician. I had more stage presence, <laughs> I mean, more sex appeal, but yeah, Robbo was hands down a better musician. What I can unequivocally say is neither of us could sing for <laughs> shit, <laughs> yeah. and we both got relegated for into <laughs> instruments very That's quickly. True. So there were two well-known SAS bands. One was the externals, and we've played some music on previous podcasts, and then the other was Tongue Charge, which rates better. Oh. <laughs> tongue charge. <laughs> no doubt about well, actually, it. Um, now, Robbo, knowledge isn't knowledge unless you give it away. So the idea behind Unforgiving 60 is to share those insights and experiences that you've had, and hopefully, like little bowerbirds, we can bracket all that up and provide it to people as practical applied tools. We have talked on the introduction about your first of many careers as a fighter pilot. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about your background and how you joined the Air Force, uh, what motivated you to be a fighter pilot? Yeah, certainly. Um, And initially, I wasn't a a fighter pilot up front, and it certainly wasn't a lifelong aim. I left school pretty much looking for a trade and uh, doing something bigger than me, which uh, the military represented at that time, and pilot seemed like a good trade to have. 
throughout pilot training, I wasn't particularly a star. I struggled. I had to work very hard at it and scrape through. But uh, getting out, got into some single pilot stuff with the Nomad and forward air control, which was really good for my confidence and also the side of aviation that I enjoyed, and then got an opportunity to go to fighters. So it was kind of a progressive thing as I built my aviation expertise. I definitely wasn't a natural. I wasn't a Matty Hall by any stretch of the imagination and certainly struggled through fighters as well. It's funny, for gentlemen of our vintage, I thought you were going to answer that question with two words, Top Gun. We, we both grew up at the period where you were pretty formative uh, when that movie came out. And for me, certainly, I, there was a big period of my life where it had to be uh, Maverick. Yeah, but obviously that was the naked volleyball. That was nothing to do with the flying. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's get to the really serious stuff, Robbo. What was your handle as a fighter pilot? We went with originality with mine, uh, which was Robbo. <laughs> Many tried to stick a few others to me, um, but no, it was, uh, and, I, and I take that as just that I was very dull, so Robbo was all I could come up with. Yeah, well, we're in trouble. We were going to talk about that for five minutes, so we have to, have to fill, fill the rest of that. Um, right, now, not being happy being a fighter pilot, I think it was 1998 you came and did SAS Selection. Yeah. 1998. And uh, what motivated you? You're a fighter pilot. You're happily living the life of, you know, flying fast jets, being back in the officer's mess of an evening, enjoying a Chardonnay and a steak. Why did you want to come and join the SAS? Uh, it's, a, it's a question I'm asked a lot. Um, and I think it's no different from anyone that goes into that sort of career. You just, uh, you feel it in your stomach. You've got to, you've got to go and do it. Uh, a little bit more layers on that, I guess. I never really, I wasn't a particularly good fighter pilot for a start, but um, I never really understood the relevance of what we were doing in fighters. Um, and at the same time, the idea of bombing from altitude to people that can't shoot back, those sort of things didn't sit very well with me. I'd always had a bit of a relationship with certain people in SF as a fat guy. And uh, it just seemed to be a common sense thing to do um, when it came to a certain point in my career. For our um, non-acronym friendly listeners, FAC is uh, FAC Forward Air Controller. So these are the people that are a, a soldier's best friend on the ground in terms of coordinating air support in, uh, in combat. And apologies for that use of TLAs. <laughs> I do apologise. Now, our first meeting was actually on selection and I was a second year troop commander, I think, at the time. And I was invited up to assist on the officer module and I arrived, arrived up in Bindoon, which is our, one, of the, one of the training areas for the SAS regiment. And there was this very small group of officers that were left on the course at the time. And one completely stood out because all I could think of when I looked at this bloke is that guy's head looks like it's been stuck on a toothpick. <laughs> <laughs> and for, uh, fortunately, you know, you've got a great head for podcasts, but you actually have one of the biggest heads in the world, probably <laughs> to contain all of the brains. What size head do you have? I'm actually a 60, and I just like to say that my brother, who is the largest head in the family, is a 61, and he's actually a big head. You think mine's big. In, in all seriousness, though, one of the things that's always struck me about your myriad of achievements is the fact that you don't really have a big head, that you, you always come across as very modest. Um, and even in that discussion today, you've, you've been pretty self-deprecating. Um, do you not look around and, and think you're killing it? Uh, no, n never, in fact. Um, and... Uh, I'm always looking at other people and think they're killing it, you know, you guys being good examples. Um, and I think that's a common trait when you get on any sort of conveyor of, um, of achievement. You're always self-doubting. You're always thinking you're not doing well enough. And if you compound that with lateral 
movements, you're always out of your depth. Mm. So uh, when I got to the regiment, I you know straight into troop command. It was just keep your head above the water and and try not to screw up. Yeah. And uh, and that's you know you're kind of living in fear for those early times, particularly as an Air Force guy, because we don't really do leadership. Yeah. I always, um, this concept of imposter syndrome where, you know, you, you're in a role and, and maybe feel you're, you're not quite ready for it or not quite the right person. Do you do you sort of get that every Yeah, every absolutely. Time time? I, I've sort of refined it over the years and I'm even feeling it right now, um, getting qualified on a different aeroplane and having guys who are 20, 25 teach me. And it's the same student mentality. But I always think of it as external versus internal perception. Mm-hmm. We all have an internal dialogue and we all we all are surprised when we hear an external feedback that's like, who are they talking about? Who's, who's that guy? <laughs> yeah. um, and it's a good thing uh, because it keeps you humble and keeps you striving. But I think the bad thing about that, which I've had a few times, is people can tend to make assumptions about, oh, he's good at everything or he's... And, and, and they completely miss the, the late nights, the hard times, the, the crying in toilet cubicles during <laughs> fighter course, all of those elements that really are the ones that dominate you um, and your existence. So it's, um, it, it can work both ways. And I think being realistic about that is really useful. But it can also work against yourself if you get too negative in those moments where you've got to actually uh, fake it till you make it. Back yourself. Yeah, mm. and back yourself, then uh, you can be your own worst enemy. Now, fast forward to the end of selection. I remember Flight Lieutenant Robbo, his profile goes up in front of the board. Just to, just to clarify there, uh, TC, you were out in the selection for three days. So let's not, <laughs> let's not say you were there for the whole time. You well, cameoed in at the end there. That was the first time I met you. getting a bit cold. It was very fighter pilot-esque, wasn't it, of me? But no, the, the, the board, I remember distinctly saying, this guy doesn't have the skills to come to the SAS, but they're trainable. This guy has a raw intelligence and a determination that we really want. And that was the basis for your selection, if I remember that right. Yeah, you'd know more than me on that. Um, I think I was still standing at the end, which helped. Um, <laughs> and I think I was the first, which always helps as well, because there's no template. And I certainly know Air Force guys that have come after me had to go off and do infantry training. So it always pays to be first. Um, maybe that was because of, <laughs> of my lack of infantry training. <laughs> but uh, I think several of those things worked in my advantage. Um, and I think the other thing that worked in my advantage is I got no time to train. So I had to do very early mornings, very late nights, fly a couple of times a day. And that kind of prepped me for that whole imbalance of selection as it came along. And the other thing that was in my favour at that time was um, was my next posting, which I really didn't want to do. So that was always a good motivator. Uh, I did a I did a fair bit of um, sort of practical training as best as I could to catch up on the the military stuff. But I was still grossly inept when it came to uh, to the green roll side of things. Which, thank God, when we went to Afghanistan, um, I had an incredible troop who uh, basically carried me. So that was good. So let's talk about entering stage left into the SAS regiment. You've got a young flight lieutenant who was short on the skills. Um, What were the major challenges for an Air Force guy coming into a special forces unit? Uh, understanding leadership, I think, was one of the biggest ones. Uh, we didn't have the 18 months that your average officer has, even as a basic training. I was a 10-week officer training guy. In the cockpit, it's very technically based. It's not a leadership role, and that, that dominates an Air Force guy's career. It's all about how well you fly. It's very tactically, um, you know, technical mastery rather than uh, warrior mastery, mastery, to use cliched terms. So the biggest challenge was to understand the role of a troop commander. And I think one of the funniest stories, when I was first on CT, we went to do a boat, um, a, a marine mission, and 
all the guys were sitting in the ribs and I was the last to get in. And I jumped in and sat down and took my spot, looked around and said, what are we waiting for? And they basically said, for you to say go, there was. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So um, you're probably the most qualified talking about what it takes to be a leader in the SAS. I mean, what, what are the secrets to leading in, a, in, a, in that small group environment? Um, for me, uh, well, I think I've evolved this into uh, empathy. Uh, I think one of the luxuries you have as a troop commander, you've got 20 guys, 25 guys, generally similar but all different. And if you look at the world through their eyes and you're willing to take on their intent, their purpose, listen to them and somehow blend that into what is the collective troop purpose, I think that's essential. And I found that later in life with business is it's not about sympathy, it's not about your intent, it's about understanding your group intent but every member of the group is an individual. So the better you can get into their brains, uh, the better you can get the best out of them. And certainly from an army guy, having seen yourself as the, the um, first, but an, a number of fighter guys come through the unit, um, we've certainly learnt a lot from, from you as well. And one that sticks out to me is the, the debriefing process, um, the way that the fighter community talks about missions, looks at the after-action review from missions, uh, I think is very mature and, and staggeringly seems very ego-free. Can you talk us through how sort of fighter pilots uh, debrief a mission? Yeah, as long as I can quote you saying fighter pilots are ego-free. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, yeah. We are yeah. ego-free. There's no, yeah. never an ego in a fighter cockpit at all. <laughs> Nothing whatsoever. Look, it, it, it's a brutal environment. It comes down to uh, simple uh, cost. Uh, you have an hour on a BFM, uh, sorry, basic fighter manoeuvres, a dogfighting sort of, you've got an hour of fuel mm -hmm. in which to learn as much as you can, whether it's on course or whether you're training in the squadron. So you might get three looks at something and you've got to get as much as you can out of that. So when you put big packages together, you'll have these long debris because that can be millions of dollars of fuel that yeah. you've just spent and getting the most out of that and those moments in time are very important. Sometimes we go overboard, but the brutality, the directness, the objectivity is something that dominates aviation from the 70s where you know we, we, we're trying to solve a problem, not uh, protect anything, and that open uh, discourse is very useful. But, but it does get hot sometimes. It does get, it does get emotional sometimes because we're all... Uh, protective of our performance or at the very least uh, uh, self-deprecating about our full performance. And you took an SAS troop in operations. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, that was Afghanistan. It was one of our, uh, it was sort of shortly after 9-11. Um, but really from a tactical perspective, it was just phenomenal. It was straight into uh, long-range patrolling. And as the, uh, at that stage, I was the mobility troop commander and we were just called upon, I think, 150 days in country and 120 in the field. Uh, Gus Gilmore did a great job attaching us to conventional units where we just got to do our bread and butter. And I think a lot of the other special forces who were very focused on HV, sorry, high value target type missions uh, started looking over the fence at us and basically acknowledging that, hey, this is what the SAS does, is long range patrolling. So we got some good kudos during that period. And a great troop, just a phenomenal troop, you know. Um, all the troop commanders, that, that, sorry, all the um, all the team commanders that looked after me were, were just a phenomenal team. So we brought them all home unmolested, which was uh, which was very satisfying. And of course, this was over the period of um, Operation Anaconda as well, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah. Yep. So uh, that was sort of the culmination that was supposed to be the big defeat of the Taliban, which really just highlighted how little that we'd skimmed the surface of. 
um, of the threats in Afghanistan. And interestingly, two months before, the troop had been overwatching that area and we'd basically discovered the targets, etc. And we said, we need to sit here for an hour or for months, you know, and, and map this place before we do anything. We got pulled off because uh, American elements wanted to go in there. Went back in there two months later and we, we'd had done no strategic reconnaissance of it at all and it turned into what it turned into. And then we were called in to recover a lot um, and assist with Overwatch um, to pull, uh, to assist pulling some of those elements out. So it was uh, pretty intense um, and uh, operating at higher level, very uh, light gear uh, and the guys did a great job. Leadership challenge, is there any different to, to back at home in training, particularly the high intensity of counterterrorism training that you were talking about before? Uh, again, um, I was really just keeping my head above water. So from the leadership side of things, the empathy side, understanding the guys and relying on the, on the guys and their expertise. Uh, again, I was very lucky with two very good troops uh, during those periods where I got a lot of shit, obviously, but, um, but they kept me honest. You then had an opportunity to be posted to UK Special Forces and did a secondment with the Special Boat Service. What, what year was that? Uh, 2002 into 2003. So you pretty much came straight out of Afghanistan, packed your bags and headed across to the UK? Yeah, I basically went over to the UK, which was supposed to be a feed on the desk officers tour where I did lots of courses and saw lots of Europe. So um, it didn't work out that and way. That didn't work out that way because perfect timing in 2003, you were in Iraq. Yes, yeah, so we were in part of the first invasion into Iraq. Um, At that stage, they'd argued very hard to get into the Western Desert because it was one of the gaps with the focus on southern Iraq. So we'd pushed very hard to get inserted into the Western Desert and effectively try and raise a local militia to, uh, to come into Kirkuk from the West. And you were the squadron second in command? Uh I was I wasn't the two IC during the insertion. I was the ops guy. So one of the troop commanders was the two IC. The, I was an Australian, of course. I wasn't going to be the two IC. So. It begs the question on the where would where would you like to be in five years? Um, As in from which in 1998, if someone had asked you that question, I'm sure you wouldn't have given the answer. A tour of Afghanistan on exchange to the UK Special Forces, and then into Iraq. Yeah, I guess, uh, well, to be honest, I guess I kind of had that intent of getting more involved in operations and it was much more likely in the West, uh, which was another motivation of selection, uh, to say the tempo and the focus uh, that it turned out to be, I think was no one really predicted at that time. But um, yeah, it was, a, it was a very intense five years and you know, lucky or unlucky, depend on your description, <laughs> on mm. your perspective. Yeah, that's very true. And can you talk us about, uh, talk to us a little bit about what happened in the early stages of the, the Iraq operation? Uh, most of the focus was down on southern Iraq. Um, we were preparing to go into the north and uh, it was very interesting because even prior to that, there was a build-up and pressure on Saddam to effectively declare weapons of mass destruction, which he didn't have and, and there was very little evidence of. So I wasn't anticipating an invasion, um, perhaps naively. So when it happened, even the shock and awe campaign at the start was a bit of a dribble over the border. It wasn't a shock and awe, it was sort of half. So the whole thing was a little bit messed up from the start. But we cracked on, as we do. And uh, what was a fairly spectacular insertion into the Western Desert, it involved um, far, you know, refuel uh, herks into the country, then refuelling at night and then jumping onto Chinooks with vehicles and then up, up across the Euphrates into the Western Desert. So very impressive stuff. 
at that stage, uh, we're a little bit behind, a couple of days behind the shock and all, and uh, our job was to connect with the militia on a, on a US intelligence operation, which again, we didn't have a lot of QA on the initial contacts. And we did that, but we had to operate fairly overtly, reaching out. I had an interpreter with me, um, and we were, I'd done an Arabic course at that stage, so we were sort of working our way through understanding some of those um, uh, Bedouins in the Western Desert, and also our first meetings, which were fairly inadequate. That set us up pretty much to be identified and subsequently uh, engaged by some fairly solid forces there. And on that fateful day, you were contacted by the Republican Guard. Can you talk us through that contact? Um, Republican Guard. I don't think it was a Republican Guard. I'm not. I'm not sure we actually ever identified which elements they were, but it was a fairly solid element who, again, lit us up. I mean, there's been many, many versions about that particular day, and I think a few books written on it. But um, it was a moderate level contact, I guess. I guess the the significant theme is we hadn't had a significant workup as a squadron, uh, and and a lot of us hadn't, or a lot of the guys, particularly the Brits, hadn't seen the firepower of a squadron OM, um, operational manoeuvre group. So, you know, our immediate, in the boss's immediate reaction was to break contact and, and pull back rather than show the full force of what we had. So, which wasn't a bad call. And the other underpinning uh, strategic thing was that we're at the edge of our, absolute edge of our um, medevac capabilities. So our directions were very clear. Don't get involved in small scuffles. You know, don't get anyone hit. You are there to build a force and move east. So there was some subtext there, which we got some unfair grief about breaking contact and trying to get away from it, because um, even at that stage, some of the uh, SAS units in the south had had small contacts with their SUV-sized groups, but there was a much larger strategic intent across the board. So we had that example to say, don't don't get caught up in that sort of stuff. And there were some decisions made appropriately for that. Okay, and you came out of Iraq and decision to leave the military. What prompted that? Um, the flow on from Iraq, I think, uh, later on when we were, were engaged back in Basra and we're up close and personal with the taking of Basra and amongst the, uh, the armoured battalions there, a very strong um, element. We had a blue on blue and subsequent events resulted in the boss being removed from command. And, uh, and then I was field promoted to, to take command of the task force or the, the squadron task force at the time, which was fairly intense and a fairly, I guess, you know, a fairly narky time for me. I wasn't particularly happy about the war for a start, and now I was just trying to piece a, a fighting force back together in, as, a, as an expat and uh, group in people in the middle of a fairly intense war. So there was a lot of dynamics happening at that time. I think on top of what was a high tempo six years, combined with a bit of disillusionment about the Iraq war, plus I was getting to the age where it was very clear I was reaching my ceiling limit. So it was just a bunch of things happened together. And at the same time, I was marrying a, a British girl, so we were planning to sort of move over to England anyway. So a series of things occurred at the same time that, that ended up with that decision, which was very fast. It was a fast decision, and, um, and perhaps there were some subtexts there that I wasn't prepared for. And then out of uniform and into a suit, and you're an advisor to an oil company, I think out of Geneva? That's correct. So I stepped through the UN for a while, where I worked for a, a shabby bunch of management people there in the UN. <laughs> And just to be clear, I was the shabby bunch of management people in the UN. And um, stepped through that, picked up some other work in the UK, just uh, what they commonly call the circuit, 
And uh, through that sort of approach was picked up by an auto exec company where uh, I, put, I was putting together their health, safety, security, environmental infrastructure and their community relations infrastructure. And the intent with that was just to have a look at, okay, post-conflict damage in these companies, how do we get the best out of finance, the best out of local NGOs? How do we mash that together, given we'd seen some of the deficiencies with the UN at the time? What is the equation that results in getting the best out of these in some of these war-torn and, and um, uh, sort of asymmetrically wealthy countries and how does that work? So that sort of appealed to me at the time and I was right in the middle of that. At the same time, I was doing some work with the government at the time in the UK where I went through a selection process with them and did some work in the foreign office over there over, over an extended period. And how did you find the transition, Robbo? Out of uniform. Difficult. Very yeah. difficult. So it took two years. I'd say it's probably some of the blackest times I've had. Um, and, I, and I'm very big on this. Uh, people always said, oh, it's probably PTSD or it's probably this, it's probably that. And I just described it as a fairly concentrated midlife crisis um, <laughs> post-operations. Um, Did you get the motorbike? I, I did, in fact. And in fact, I took, <laughs> I took a Harley across the US, which kind of included my first anniversary, which probably was why the marriage didn't last much longer than that. Um, but there was interesting stories there. But uh, effectively, if you if you can imagine living overseas, losing any identity of a military I'd grown up with, disillusionment with Iraq, um, a, I guess, differing paths uh, between me and my wife, at the, my wife at the time, and being, being a bit isolated overseas, all of those things hit at once. So rather than just managing a tra trajectory out of the military, I kind of dumped every possible stress on top. Plus, I had a, a, a good deal of anger about Iraq, like, a, and a real edge to it about the strategic intent there. So you're obviously through that now. How did you cope with it? How did you deal with it? Any insights? Yeah, it's uh, look, it's a, a great thing, and I do have quite a bit of PTSD talks now. Effectively, what occurred, everything I'd believed in from, you know, national, you know, our the Australian nation through uh, conflict, through to democracy, through to even my marriage had all collapsed or, you know, I'd self-destructed, take your, take your pick. Yeah. And, uh, and I realised I didn't believe in anything. I actually didn't believe in, it, in anything for a period there. And I had two choices. I could either sort of go down that path of self-destruction or fundamentally recalibrate my moral framework, okay, and just work out from first principles what I do believe. Uh, one thing I did say is I was never going to put my morality in the hands of a government again. Or I was always going to have the ability to say no, uh, as with Iraq. And then I just started from the, the, the bottom up and just said, okay, do I believe in lethal force? Do I believe there is any circumstances where oh, killing someone is the best course of action? Yes. Okay, that's the start. What are those circumstances? Just built up from there and progressively that works out to social morality, to all sorts of morality, and then carving a path uh, somewhat individually that effectively touches on those things but leaves me free enough to uh, not get swept up by a corporate intent or a wealth intent or a government intent because all of those have their own flaws and their own vulnerabilities. Mm. Um, and that has served me quite well uh, since then. We've spoken in previous episodes about this concept of post-traumatic growth, of being able to come through a traumatic experience and, and better for it. It sounds like what you've experienced might be similar to that. Very much so. So the darkest periods there, I've had, obviously, as we all do, you have dark periods since. They're not nearly as dark. It's the old adage of 
um, you know, the, the guy in the hole and everyone's walking past. But the you know, the more times you fall in the hole, the, you know how to get out of it and you know how to get out of it the next time. And it's simple things for guys like, you know, physical engagement, social engagement, intellectual engagement. We're pretty simple beasts. We could give us a bit of purpose, give us a few mates and give us a gym and we're pretty good. And, and that that's a sort of fallbacks at any time. But, uh, you know, those sort of phantoms don't go away, you know. With it. And, and as I said, it's much more it's a much more midlife crisis than PTSD, I think. And the worst thing that guys find, in my view, is an overeager psych grabs hold, asks your background, says, SAS, you must have PTSD, when actually it's just a midlife crisis. So they're trying... Now you've got these hardened guys going, no, 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 it's not. I don't feel bad about killing that guy. I don't feel bad about seeing that shit. Mm. But the diagnosis is so strong, they feel like they've got to look that way instead of actually living that way. It's and, a convenient and, label? Well, it's a sexy label for a psych. You know, it's much sexier than midlife crisis. <laughs> it generally has those diagnoses. My um, sister's a classic, Black Friday in Victoria with the fires in Ballara. Um, it was around the same time that she was called out with the local country fire authority to a car accident and arrived on the scene and found out it was her son's car. So that's sort of PTSD. It's like, absolutely, and I have no doubt the same thing applies to a lot of guys that came home from the war. So I'm not reducing that. I'm just saying we've got to be very sure what the effects are to you personally because, you know, irrespective of what your friends and your partners say, there is only one victim of mental illness mental you know poor mental health and that's you and there is only one guy that can solve that and that's you and by all means use your tools but you don't want to make them too complex i think yeah to your point bring it back to bare metal and starting with some small building blocks absolutely so we, we've talked about robbo the fighter pilot we've talked about robbo the sas officer we've talked about robbo and operations robbo and the oil company robbo in the united nations let's talk about robbo the business owner and quite logically, the business that you started was, well, in fact, you've started a couple of businesses, but most um, recently, the business that you started was a seaplane business in Tasmania. Correct. Yes. Um, I'd sort of had a lot of businesses globally or a few businesses um, that have been quite successful and done okay with those and assisted with some um, startup projects in, in some foreign countries that involved aviation. But what I hadn't done was, and this is part of the empathy thing, having worked for entrepreneurs or worked for wealthy people or with them, I'd never really put my hand in my own pocket and gone, okay, I want to take a risk here. I'm going to own this whole thing in a green pasture environment. So uh, the opportunity so, so came up. Just pressing pause there. You've taken a lot of risks, but this risk was reasonably unique. Is that, is that oh, right to say? Yeah. And what was unique about it? Um, well, I think it's, it's a really funny thing and uh, you think about risk in terms of physical risk and guys seem to swallow that easily. And one of the funniest things I hear when working with the government is someone says, uh, oh, you don't want to risk your livelihood, mate. It's like, well, we ask you to risk your life but not your livelihood when we talk business. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting relationship there. But for me, it was just I need to understand what it's like to, to roll the dice out of your own pocket and at the same time something very challenging and very something with very high cost and low margins to really exercise that a, a perverse sense of emotional curiosity which my business partner used to hate me saying because to him it was like he's, he's a bit more linear than i am so he was very much uh no no we're here to make money and lifestyle so for me it was a bit of a okay let's see what we can do here so it's very high risk venture we knew that tasmania aviation add in maritime and add in tourism you know it's like yeah good call guys mm -hmm. but 
it, it was for a purpose and it was, uh, I did put a box around it. I allocate, had an exit plan for it. Um, I had a series of KPIs that we wanted to achieve and, uh, and that process was after three years. So you were the second TAA. The first one didn't work. How did the second one go? Yeah, interesting. Um, those that love to criticise from afar will say it failed and, and crashed and burned and all of that sort of stuff. The bottom line was it was a great success to me personally um, and, uh, and to my business partner. It wasn't for, um, commercially sustaining. We won several a business award. We won a Telstra National, um, sorry, a state uh, t um, uh, business award. And we operated without, you know, we stood the operation up against every possible hurdle and uh, we're turning over a million dollars, you know, towards the end of it. And it was costing us about a million to do that. So not unusual, but what was occurring at the same time was we were kind of victims of our own success, our rate of effort was going up. There weren't solutions to things like uh, increasing maintenance requirements because we're in Tassie, we're having to bring guys down from Sydney. Um, there weren't solutions to uh, some of the cash flow issues in regard to circulating money around Tasmania. And the lifestyle for us, we were sort of, okay, what's next? So uh, we weren't ready to commit and live down there as relatively um, modest aviation owners. But the risk was the biggest one because as we saw, the aircraft were, were starting to show signs of con you know, concern and we couldn't fix that without significant outlay. And we're, we weren't operating in Sydney, we were operating in the Badlands. And uh, one incident in particular highlighted on a sunny day, landed on good water, made the, the news down there, which was just a very minor unserviceability. But it occurred to me that if that had occurred in any other flight, we were over the bush, or we were over difficult weather and difficult conditions. And, you know, we've just seen another recent accident in Tasmania. Uh, it is a demanding environment. And obviously we saw Sydney seaplanes as well. So all of those, again, the exit plan, stepping back from it, having a look at the layers of satisfaction coming out of the business, it was the right call to, uh, to close the business down. And I don't regret it for a moment. And there was a few other subtexts there for that. But yes, yeah, so I describe it as successful. Many people looking for a far would not describe it. I would just describe it as not commercially viable. Robbo, in the Unforgiving 60, we seek out people who have uh, led lives less ordinary, and you are uh, pretty much the poster child for that. How would you define success? It's a great question. And it's one of the fundamental questions I think everyone needs to ask and everyone's answer is different. Uh, and one of the things about separating yourself from any structure, as I did during that moral process, which was also to define what success is. Uh, and I think success is whatever you want it to be effectively. And the hardest part about the success equation is understanding what you want it to be. Yeah. Um, for and, me- And codifying it to-, to codify, Absolutely yeah. codifying it. Yeah. And, uh, and in fact, I'm writing an article on this exact thing at the moment for, uh, for a magazine based on that decision process of a bloke as he goes through a linear life and he comes to the first fork in the road, family, career, etc. Okay, what does success look like? And for me, success is a very simple balance between uh, enjoying every moment, having influence and perspective, uh, achieving the balance between living the life you want to live around the people you want to live, but striving to make a difference elsewhere and striving to progress. Um, and again, it comes back to those three, is always having an intellectual engagement challenge, always having a physical engagement challenge and always having social 
not challenge, but a social network Engage. that you're growing and developing to the day you die. Because for me, retirement is, is a funny term. I don't ever want to achieve a certain mm. retirement. Uh, financial elements are normally the fourth uh, element that I, I assess any sort of uh, activity or project with um, before three others. And um, and really, I just want to be doing that in various capacity until the day you die. So that to me is a life well lived. Does it look good on a on a um, on a CV. on a gravestone or a CV? Perhaps not, because there's a lot of lateral moves and different moves. Uh, and sometimes when you look back, the the moments you got out of that. So I remember walking along Tassie Seafront with a cappuccino, looking at my seaplane, just in happiness. You know, despite being in debt, despite all these things going on, you got to remember those moments and go. That's why I did that. I didn't do it because I was trying to impress someone on a on a private pilot website or I was trying to be, you know, Richard Branson. That's why I did it. So it's that dialogue, that classification of what your own success is without the impact of society or any sort of external pressure and then following that path. Nice. Now, we take our title from a line from a Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, and one of the things we do when we've got guests on is, is ask them to reflect on parts of that poem. And I'd put to you the the um, the opening line, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. What does that mean to you? How have you kept your head in the, the high pressure situations you've faced on the battlefields in Iraq and Afghanistan or in the, the cockpit of a fast jet? Yeah, I think, well, I think it sort of overlays some of the other answers we've done. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say I've always kept my head. I and mean, again, in some of the examples you use, I've had good people around me who have helped and certainly probably slapped me around to keep my head. But, um, but I think it comes down to fundamentals and it's kind of similar to the other answers. You know what your purpose is, you know what your risks are, and just connecting those dots carefully uh, with a serious consequence analysis and a, and a process in your own mind of where you want to be and what you want to do. Reminding yourself that small progression is still progression. So mm -hmm. the first small step leads to the next small step. Uh, and the same thing applies to life or any sort of uh, development. Listening to the people around you and knowing who the smarter people are than you and making sure you listen to those and feeding off that sort of element and then making sure you're, you're very articulate and clear in the direction you're going. But it comes back to what are the fundamental principles? You know, we all have the hairs on the back of our necks when we know we're being led down a plan that's not right mm. or we know we're doing something that's not exactly crisp. And you know it. Humans know it. If, they, if they're aware enough of their own emotions, they know it. Uh, and it's one of the one of the absolute secrets to life is speaking up and acting when you know you should and there are just too many people in the world that are quiet, silent and they're armchair experts after, whether it's business, whether it's operations, whether it's war. And we see that in our politics, we see it in our business society and I'm sure we see it amongst our friends and our, our great critiquers and our great, um, our great observers. Robbo, it's been an absolute pleasure having, on, having you on The Unforgiving 60. Thanks for being here and hopefully we'll get some tongue charge music. We'll work on it. <laughs> Thanks very Thanks much for your time, guys. Really appreciate it. And uh, all the best with it. It's a great, uh, great concept, great movie. Cheers. Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence and would love your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, let us know. You can get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and rate us on iTunes. You can follow us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next time, we wish you luck in filling your Unforgiving 60s with some quality distance run. Just like